0: You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you, I'm really excited about my guest today because you know I remember back with MTV back in the day, he had the coolest video where his guitar had a hella his video had a helicopter in it, and his guitar shot lasers. And as, as guys in New Jersey, we were like, "Man, this is so cool!" And that was like the introduction to a lot of us for the '80s. You know, we were I was a high school kid in the '80s, and I went to college in the '80s, but we lived around videos and the. The video is so cool, and he had this this leopard suit, and we're like, this guy's like the, the coolest dude in the world. And he has a great rock opera he's been working on since 2008, and we're going to talk a lot about that. We're also going to talk about his career, but my guest is Aldo Nova. How you doing? Very well. You know what? When you're
1: in 1982 and you're 24 years old, to come out of a helicopter wearing a leopard suit, when nobody knows you're coming out of that, it takes a lot of balls, i got to tell you.
0: <laughs> it was yeah. It was it was so different. It was so cool because it's just because you know videos. It had a beginning, and even when you listen to the uh, the song Fantasy, it has that noise in the beginning, which is very cutting edge. And I can tell now because the one song that is sort of slower on your thing at the end, it sounds like it's going to stop in the rock opera, and then you speak at the end. So I can tell you, you've had that you've had that uh, that view of music for a long time. So. Tell me about the life and times of Eddie Gage, because it's, it's the five songs you sent me, they go well together, and it's very cool.
1: Well, the album is actually 23 songs, and it lasts two hours long. But when I said she was five songs, so it gives you an idea of the rock opera feel of it. But um, I started the rock opera in 2008. In 2008, I made a conscious decision to stop working with anybody, whether it be Celine, Bon Jovi, Faith Hill, everybody. I just had enough. So in 2008, I had a vision to do a rock opera, and right away the title came to me called The Life of Times of Eddie Gage. And Eddie Gage is basically my uh, my alter ego, you know, because the story sort of reflects my life. So I worked on it, and I started doing it, I, I started working on the first eight songs. And the eight songs were finished, except. They were rough and whatever. Um, Then I stopped for a while. And then in 2011, I started writing more songs. In 2013, I wrote more songs. In 2015, I wrote more songs. And the bulk of the album, the songs that you heard there, were from 2019. And the record, uh, the record was finished, mastered by Bob Ludwig in September of 2019. And then on May 12th, uh, twenty twenty I wrote the last song when all was said and done, uh, And that just you know, finished the record. That sort of really like made the record finished. That was the last character I needed for it. And so I sent it back to Bob Ludwig, he really uh, just put everything back together the way I wanted, and finally the album was finished after twelve years.
0: Now you said you decided you just you weren't gonna write for anyone else anymore, you're not gonna work with anyone else. What brought you to that decision? What made you, you know, you because you had a, very, you're very successful. You've been a very successful songwriter. Was it just you were tired of doing it for other people, or what made you decide that you said, "Screw it"? Because that's a big, that's a big leap. You, you know, you're losing that work.
1: Um, for one, I never got enough recognition for what I did. Because uh, basically, my nickname is the Ghost. I'm always, no matter how many stars you know about, I'm always behind. The, the scenes doing the work, whether it be Sillian Dion, I would do just about everything and then literally coach chop these things, whether it be Bon Jovi on Young Guns 2. I literally arranged and produced the whole record, yet somebody got the credit for producing it. I didn't get paid any money, well, the guy gets paid a lot of money. It's basically been the same thing throughout my whole career, just ghosting uh, on you know behind the scenes on everybody. So I noticed that after a while, just didn't have the recognition. It wasn't a matter of money. It was just a matter of being respectable, being respected. So uh, I just figured I'd have it up, and I might as well work for myself. If I was going to do that, put as much effort as to produce other people, and they were all getting rich while I stayed poor, I said, well, you know, I'll uh, do my own thing, even if it meant starving, which I did. I starved for quite a bit, a long time. And uh, it was hard to put food on the table for the kids, but I made that decision. And I'm glad I made it no, no, no. I don't know how many years later 12 years
0: later Now when you're at those points Where you're starving What makes you stick with it What, what makes you stick with it And say you know I have this vision Instead of just Saying screw it I, I don't want to do this anymore You mean the, the rock opera I mean uh, Your career When you when you walked away from writing And you just said You know you were frustrated What made What made you stay Stay in the business Just the love of it
1: yeah, I love music. I was born to love music. I was born to play music. I was born to entertain. I was like, that's where I'm born. Whether it's telling a joke at a table, whether it's, you know, I don't need to be in front of 20,000 people adulating me to have a good time or to think that I'm good, you know, stuff like that. I can be at a table with somebody in an Italian restaurant, tell a joke, one of my million jokes, and have, make them laugh or just laugh and have a good time. And I'm as satisfied with that as doing that. Now, why did I stick with it? Um, I don't know. Have faith. I guess it's probably that. I had faith and I had hope. and I don't know. I didn't know what else to do. Something told me that it was going to happen one of these days. That's all. Not to give up.
0: Now, how did you end up getting into this business? You said as you, when you were young, you know, you were born into music and, and you wanted to tell jokes. What were some of your influences when you were little that made you sit there and watch and say, "I want to, I want to jam"? Because you do jam. I mean, you, when you you play guitar, you rock. So, what were some of the influences when you were younger? When I was younger,
1: well, I guess it's the Beatles. Because at my age, I'm sixty four. I guess I actually saw the Beatles when they actually was on the TV, were on TV at the at the Ed Sullivan Show. Actually, the first time they played, it wasn't as if, I watched it on YouTube. I was actually there that night on TV. So that changed my life. I mean, it's like you saw music from a totally different angle. There's, the Beatles were like the start of it all. And they were actually the end of it all. They were like, guys, you know, listen to the records today, and they're brilliant. So the Beatles, the Stones, 70s music, 60s music, Motown. My brother had an amazing record collection, and I just grew up with good music. And, you know, and then when the Led Zeppelin was big, I mean, I was always there for the the, the, the monumental uh, times in music, where all these landmarks of music were there. So um, I don't know what made me start with music. I guess it was like I don't know when I was four years old or six years old. I used to pass in front of a store, and there was this ukulele hanging in the window, and I used to love that ukulele. I love that ukulele, and every more and every time I would pass by that store with my mother, I would say, "Man, can you buy me that ukulele?" And she never, you know, for a while, it took a long time. After a while, she finally, after ribbing her ribbing for the longest time, she bought me the ukulele. Now, there I would sit in front of the mirror and play the rock star because the Beatles were on and stuff like that. And after about, I don't know, two weeks of having the ukulele, my brother sat on it and broke it. So it was like, I don't know, I always wanted to have something else. And then uh, I just wanted to always play music. Then my brother bought me my first guitar, and that was it. I wanted to be Hendrix, so.
0: Now, did you pick the guitar up easily? Are you you teacher uh, taught or did you teach yourself? How did you? Because I always hear different stories. Some people, you know, they went through the whole teaching process. A lot of great guitarists just pick it up and then they just teach themselves and they listen by ear. How did you start learning the guitar? Um, Back then, we only had a
1: 33 and a third table, a turntable with a little speaker in it with a needle I and mean, you must be aware you must know those times and back then it was like pick up a guitar and the action's about the is about a, a half an inch off the, the neck it's not as if something easier to play I mean you really have to like force play this and it was like make the turntable and put one note and then try to grab that note then you let it go for two notes then put the needle on by the time you finish learning the song the records ruined. so um uh, just kept going and learning that song and, and I don't know, that's just what we learned. We didn't have YouTube back then. Nobody learned from YouTube. And I think all my peers, whether it be Neil Sean or Joe Balamasa and all these guys out there, I think they learned from that way and I think that's that's the best way to learn. Just like doing that and once you learn that it's called woodshedding. Uh, you just sit there and practice in your room and practice and practice and practice and you, um, you want to be as best as you can possibly be compared to music nowadays where people tend to want to be as mediocre as they
0: possibly want to be. So I think- it, it's true. You know, people never understand. People see someone on stage just jamming on guitar and they don't... A lot of people, that's why I call them civilians who aren't in any kind of entertainment business, they think it just... Uh, they, don't, they don't see that you guys practice constantly and every good musician has to practice so much. I mean, how many hours do you think you would practice a day when you were really learning the craft? I would not
1: uh, I would not come out of my room except to go to school and eat. That's it. The rest of the time I played guitar. That's all I did. I listened. My biggest influence is Jimi Hendrix and I wanted to be Jimi Hendrix. I wanted to do that. And he, he, uh, he affected the whole world of guitar playing. And then, of course, there was the other era of Eddie Van Halen, God Rest His Soul. Uh, we, we had two eras that revolutionized guitars. One is the... Hendrix era that affected all this uh, the older generation and then after that uh, Eddie Van Halen affected the, the, the new younger younger generation and he, there was a whole new set of kids that wanted to learn how to play guitar from Eddie so um, when I was a kid I just wanted to you know be as good as as, uh, as Hendrix and I've, I have that style of playing in me I'm, you know, I'm not the kind of guy who plays a lot of notes as fast as I can and you know as many notes in the short amount of time which i call diarrhea of the fretboard uh <laughs> I, you know, I just play i play like just a few notes but just select notes and they're at the right place at the right time and i don't have to, i just play for the song you know so uh i just want it to be better and better and better you know? so.
0: now when did you start writing your own music what and what sparked you to write it because you know You know, if you idolize Hendrix, of course, everyone's probably probably playing a lot of Hendrix songs. But when did you sit there and say, you know, I can write my own music. And was it an easy process for you?
1: I think it was at 14 years old. We used to jam at somebody's my friend's garage. And I just hit this one chord and then I kept going and going. And that was my first piece of music. Uh, It was just, also, I'm kind of like, not tone deaf, but... uh, I have a hard time picking up of people's music. In other words, if you ask me to play somebody else's song, I'll just say I can't, and, uh, which was tough for me because when I was playing clubs, you used to, to, you used to have to like, the band that used to sound the most like the record or it used to, have to be the, the carbon copy of the record was the band that got the most work. So back then I used to sing, play guitar and play keyboards. And so it was, um, excuse me, it was a bitch. To learn you know how to how to learn those songs so it was a lot of hard work but you know i was doing i was in a band that we did two sets of disco which i sang we did one set of old rock and roll like shot and one set where we played the uh, beatles so i did this four nights a week for 40 years a steady you know like four or five sets a night you know four nights a week and i had a day job so when it came time to get into the studio and actually somebody gave the studio time I already knew what to do. I already knew harmony, how to harmonize my voice, how to play guitar, how to, you know, because I studied the Beatles and I was playing them every night, so it wasn't, I was already prepared, you know what I mean? So, uh, I had the the ammunition, so I I practiced a lot. I had a lot of hours.
0: Now, how did you get to record your first album? What led up to you getting a record deal?
1: My story. I, uh, started, first of all, the funny, the story is really back, the back story is really, uh, I uh, was living in a basement and I had instruments, but I had also bought a a synthesizer called a CS80, this thing weighed 150 pounds, it's like huge, so I was living in a basement and I got broken into and the guy stole everything but my 150 pound synthesizer, now with that synthesizer, somebody came up to me and asked me to write a song. So I wrote a song with a new wave, new wave twist, and from that he said, "Well, I've got studio time, I've got a record deal." So we went into the studio, and I did six more songs with him. Then the studio realized that it was me that was doing all the work. He skipped the bill, so the studio came up to me and said, "Well, you know, either you pay us ten grand or you keep going." So I kept going, and then the new wave um, side of it left, and I started writing songs like Under the Gun and Hot Love, and that led to to being heard by a company called ATV Music, which is a publishing company, and I got signed to them, and then they sold my contract to uh, Portrait Records in the States. It was sort of an evolution that was, I was lucky, I was at the right place at the right time. I, uh, I'm sure there's guys a lot more talented than me that just told be-
0: Fantasy was your first big hit, and as I said, the beginning of that song—you're not used to hearing, you know, the sounds. Like I was listening to it the other day, you know, like the helicopter and all that. And was it hard to get that past the record company, or did they just say it's cool? Because you know, you know how music was back then—it was very start the song and then go. Well,
1: I always had see the script to the the, video of the Fantasy. I wrote the whole police story uh, of it. Like to me, it was always like the spaceman. To me, to me, David Bowie was like a complete influence of you know, the way he played the persona and the way he dressed. was different. For me, uh, somebody who's up on stage has got to be somebody who's, who looks just was like, took time to, for his audience to, to, to be there. And I mean, to me, David Bowie was like the way he dressed, his red hair. So that's why I decided to wear the leopard suit. And I wrote the whole story of coming down in the helicopter and having uh, like uh, arm guards and then lasering down the door. So I had done, the, the, So we had done the film, and after the film I had to do the soundtrack, which is all synthesizers. There's no real helicopters or whatever sounds. So that was all synthesizers, and, and the, then I tacked it on to the beginning of fantasy, record company love, and, you know,
0: just... Uh, now that song was a hit do you remember the first time you heard that song on the radio
1: on the radio actually i remember the first time i i, I saw it on, on mtv because i think mtv was just mtv had just started and i think uh, you know video killed the radio star from the bubbles was the first song ever after that after that i think MTV and uh, fantasy was the third or fourth song they were playing so uh, mtv was fairly very new I remember my video being on MTV. That was, to me, was a landmark rather than hearing on the radio. Because when I, my manager back then, Sandy Perlman, who managed the Blue Oyster Cult, uh, didn't give me time to appreciate the fact that it was on the radio or that it was selling. Before the record came out, he had me on the road playing club, or playing, opening up the Cheap Trick, or my first tour was all Notes. So I was all, uh, which seemed like a, an odd pairing, but it worked. So I was already on the road, and I was playing clubs before our record came out. So by the time the record did come out, I didn't have a chance to really absorb it. You know what I mean? It's just, I was just out there working and working my record like
0: old school. Uh, What was it like touring with Hall & Oates? Because your music's a little different than theirs. They're, uh, you know, you're, you rock and they're more poppy. I mean, did the crowds, and were you wearing like, I mean, how were you, were you dressing like Bowie going on stage? The crowds must have been like, wait a second, and heard you must have been like, this shit's awesome.
1: Well, they were, they, you know what, I didn't get belted with uh, grapefruits like I did in other shows, but I, funny, I never thought it was gonna work. Like, I really didn't think it was gonna work. Well, we played the college circuit, so I guess, uh, kids were more open to different music so we got off, we got off really well uh, they loved us and uh, it was great and then after that we went to another tour with Jeep, with Jeep Trick and Sandy Hagar and Blue Oyster Call and toured all over Europe and everything I didn't stop for three years 20. I took some time off to stop and record Subject after that and uh, then I just went on to uh, keep touring and doing that, and then came Twitch, the third album. Now, Fantasy, and the first record sold like about two and a half million records. One million after three months. So it was huge. So the record company coming to the second album gave me, you know, I, the first album I had complete creative control, because my demos were the record. Now on the second album, since I sold so much, I decided to go in a different direction. Instead of going pop rock and just songs. I did a concept album and everything is like synth oriented, rock music and songs about drug addiction like Monkey on Your Back and while well, everybody was taking a left turn. So that record didn't do so well. But although now it's considered probably uh, one of my best records. Um, after that, the third record was Twitch. Now Twitch was the record company since they didn't My album didn't do as well as the first one, decided to step in and say, well, now we're going to take creative control. And that's record, I, which I listen to now, is not so bad. Back then, it was like most of the songs, there were songs that I didn't write at all that were covers. I felt like a cover band. So after that record, um, I literally just walked away from them. From I the, said, so I'm never recording from Sony ever again. And moved back to Montreal. Waited.
0: What what made you decide to do a concept album? Because concept albums, you you hear of them, and not a lot of people do them anymore. But concept albums are just it's for the songwriter. It's a very awesome process, I would think, just because you're building this whole, as you say, the concept. What made you decide to do that? Were you just something that that that's what was stirring your emotion at the time?
1: It stirred my emotion. Plus, I always want to push the envelope. I'm not happy with the status quo. I mean, if everybody's doing rock and in my head, I hear uh, something else, I mean, it's just music. Music is evolution for me. You never, you always have to keep evolving or you stay stagnant. But to me, it was just another step forward to do the concept album. The music is different. It's like, uh, it's, like uh, it's got a main theme going all the way through it. It was about uh, post-apocalyptic world, where there was a race called The Subjects, which uh, had all the knowledge and everybody's trying to teach us how to live properly rather than destroying our planet back then. So that was the concept of the Subject. And in there interspersed between the theme were like amazing pop songs and pop rock, rock, rock songs. So it's got a little bit of everything for it, But for me, why did, why did Subject, I mean the artwork on it is different. Uh, everything on it is really different, so uh, like I said, I had total creative control, so I just did what I want. But the record now is considered to be like way ahead of its time, so That's right.
0: Now you asked the record company to release you and I believe they didn't. What is that like? I mean, so many people want a record deal and you were sticking to your guns, you were deal all about the creativity. What is it like when you walk into a record company and say, I want out? I mean, they're, and you know, they don't hear that. What was their reaction to you?
1: The reaction was you know, like I any mean, kind of a record company's reaction, with just about everybody in the business' reaction. We see you as a pound of flesh. You know, and we want your money. Uh, you're making money for us. You're a, you know, we want your milk. We're a cow that we get milk out of. And I, I don't deal with that. I mean, and I'm an artist in the true sense of the word. So, um, if I just go, forget it, I just did it. I sat it out. I moved back to Montreal and I started to do jingles for Chrysler, for Coca-Cola, earned a really good living. I mean, I was making more money than I was making music business at that time. I started doing jingles and sat it out. And, uh, in, 2000, in 1989, they finally let me out. And,
0: Go ahead. No, I was just When you wrote jingles, did people know you were Aldo Nova? Because I would be like, if I was sitting there at a, at, a, at a advertising agency, and all of a sudden you walked in, and I'm not sure you didn't walk in with a leopard outfit, but I'd be like, holy crap, that's Aldo Nova! I'd be, I'd be like, pumped. Did people know of your rock, of your rock uh, profession, or did they just think of you as a, you were a jingle writer who just started in Montreal? It's funny because
1: my first, uh, most of my jingles were. Uh gotten through uh, Celine Dion's uh, manager and husband, René So he would always come to me because most of the time she would be singing either Coca-Cola I have a Chrysler campaign. So he would know uh, who I am. But you know, it's in my hometown or my home country or my, even my own my own uh, province, which is Quebec. Uh, they think I'm an American. They think I'm an American artist. So uh it's called uh rodney dinch said good i don't get no respect up here (laughs) 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 so that's it so nobody even knew nobody cared it's like give a write me a good jingle and i'm cool and i was good at writing it you know it's like it's a punch it's like a 30 second song
0: now were you living in la before you moved up to montreal back to montreal i'm sorry were you living in la before you moved back to montreal I've
1: never lived in L.A. and I don't think I ever want to live in L.A. Uh, I was living in uh, Huntington, Long Island. Uh, in Long Island, I was living in Huntington, uh, right near, uh, right near Billy Joel. You know, it's, it's, I guess well, that's where he comes from. And I was rec- when I was recording Subject, we recorded in Si Austin, a place called Kingdom Sound. So it wasn't too far from the studio. I bought a house, and and that's another funny story too. The house. I had my first album I sold. This is just the reason why 2008, I decided to put it out It was one of the reasons. When, after selling like a couple of million records, being on the road constantly, then doing another album, and let's just say the first album, after coming off the road and selling almost two and a half million albums, and touring everywhere, I wanted to buy this house in Long Island. The house was only $200,000, which even back in 1983 really wasn't that much money. So I go to my accountant and I said, I want to buy this $200,000 house and I want to put some money down it. And he tells me, well, you don't have the money. And I'm going, why don't we, I don't have the money. Uh, I said, you know, it's like I should have money. I mean, back then I owned all the rights to the songs. I owned half the publishing. I, wrote, I owned all the words and music. Songs were 100% mine. I figured I was touring. I she must have made some money. And then I realized as the manager. 35 years later, when I got the books back, that he was like funneling all the money, all my publishing money and all my uh, writers' money, my performance royalties back into touring. You know, he was he would pay the other bands for me to open up for them. Well, not Hall and Ellis, but I mean, all the Blue Oyster cults and all that, things like that. So, you know, you find this out 35 years later when you get the books and you see that the guy's skimming, like, asking the record company for seventy, seventy-five thousand dollars 75000 here for advances against your, uh, and then $100,000 there, which is all recoupable from you. You see, when you sign, a lot of kids don't know this, when you sign a record deal. When a record company signs you, uh, they sign you and... Most of the time, the artist usually doesn't get that much of a percentage. After everything is said and done, let's say they put in $500,000 into your campaign, your videos, all of a sudden, you know, whatever. Right, they'll put $500,000 in there. Now, they have, let's say, 90% of the pot, and you have 10% of the pot, let's just say, on a good day. Well, they'll collect their $500,000 on your 10%. Not on their 90%. They don't collect on the whole. They just come and collect on your 10%, $500,000. Meanwhile, they're breaking in millions and millions of dollars. So after a while, I'm just going, "Why well, do I really need this anymore? You know. so that whole led up to 2008 when I just said it. it. was just an accumulation of stuff. Uh, you know, the only good thing that, that ever happened to me was just recently uh, when the, I did a record in 1994 called Nova's Dream, which is an experimental record, all in, instrumental, probably one of my best albums. And the guy that owned the record company sent me a letter saying, I'm folding the company. And I would like, and I think that you're the music, the music should be yours. And he gave me back my master's free of charge. And I've never seen an act of kindness like that. You know, somebody who didn't see you was a cash cow. But that was it. You know, going after 35 years later, you see it, and it's obvious. When you're young, somebody offers you a record deal, you have stars in your rights. Who's going to refuse? Nobody. It's normal. It's just that you're not going to refuse. You have no choice. That's all.
0: What was it like, though? I mean, being young, and a rock star. I mean, can you explain it in a sentence? Because everyone wants to know. Like, we hear stories, but you know, you're a good-looking guy, you you got the guitar, you're on stage, I'm sure women are going crazy. What is it like being at that age where most people are getting out of college or somewhere into their normal career? Maybe they be an accountant, so they're going to work, they're coming home. What is it like to be touring around the world and being a rock star
1: i never considered myself a rock star but you know because i'm just like when i have a band i'm just one of the guys but what's it like yeah it's pretty amazing pretty amazing it's like you're living you're living your dream i mean my my dream when i was a kid was to be on the cover of circus magazine because there were all these magazines like circus and hit Parade and cream and all these magazines so my dream was to be on the cover of those magazines. So when you finally get on the cover of those magazines, that's like, my dreams come true. Although it was, you know, later on, I find that it was a nightmare. But back in the times, it was amazing. You know, when you actually have a dream and your dream comes true, that's that's amazing, to have a dream. I think that's... Whether whether crap comes out of it or not, if you have a dream, that's what should keep you going. You know? if, any, if any musicians are listening, I think that that's what, you know, just or anybody in general, you know,
0: keep the dream, so. Tell me more about your instrumental album. What made you go that route? And when did you start learning other instruments from, I mean, you know, you started a guitar. When did you start learning other instruments? I know you played a lot of the instruments on the, uh, on your rock opera I believe you didn't play the drums and I think you had someone play the bass in some parts but when did you start when did you start learning other instruments and what made you do an instrumental album because for me instrumental albums are always cool like they they, they they're just sometimes they're relaxing sometimes they're rocking but it's just different because I think so many of your people are used to hearing lyrics that they get a little scared when it's instrumental and they go Wait, wait, where's the lyrics? But what made you do it? And and was it easy to write or was it a very laborious process?
1: Well, it was actually quite easy. Uh, It took me three months to actually write and record and finish the whole album. It was actually that, you know, when you say pushing the envelope, that was really a lot of fun. I mean, I I like all kinds of music, whether it be classical, whether it be, uh, well, which is obvious if you heard the five songs on my rock opera, I like any kind of music. I was raised with any kind of music. used to me music. I would typify that. The instrumental record was just a really pushing that envelope. It's like, you know, that it really um, uh, made my guitar playing come out. Let's see, it, it showcased my guitar playing that album rather than my other stuff. Learning other instruments, I had to learn playing in clubs. There was no keyboard player, so I had to learn keyboards. Uh, so I taught myself how to play. Uh, from the guitar, I taught myself to i play keyboards from there, uh, from reading magazines, uh, I was learning about all recording techniques. I would walked into the studio and I knew, and I would, after watching, I'm like a sponge, after watching an engineer work, after a week he's out of a job. And Then I had the chance to work with Tony Bon Jovi, who was a genius, he taught me other kinds of tricks. So uh, learning how to play instruments and doing an instrumental record, record is a uh, I wasn't alone on the instrumental record. I had some of the best players play with me, and it was fun. You know what I mean? People come to my house, and they're going, I'm going to Alba's house, and I'm going, to play this, I'm going to play on this record. And they're like, they practice for a week before they get here because they know that they're going to have a good time. So, And not just because I'm an easygoing guy and I'm funny. It's just because they know they're going to be challenged. They're going to be pushed. And a good musician loves to be pushed. And when, you, when a good musician loves to push back. And that's what I want. I want somebody who pushes back. I
0: don't want somebody who's going to collapse. So uh, that's why I, you know, that's I uh, say, you know, get together with those kind of guys. Now, you mentioned Tony uh, Bon who is, I believe he's Bon Jovi's uncle. You, you, you put a nice story. Tell me this story, because I want to hear you tell me it on Facebook. So, holding a record, your friend went down and, and uh, someone was holding a gold record. I believe it was Fantasy. You just posted it on Facebook.
1: that's tony bon jovi so tony bon jovi is the guy that mixed my first album tony bon jovi built the best studio in the world called power station and he basically built he designed everything and they they had a, a huge room with microphones in it so that you could get that huge phil collins type sound before phil collins type sound before phil collins came up with it so he would have you know he was a genius this guy actually like i said in my post this guy now invented a, uh, an algorithm that makes sounds. It's, I mean, it's got an incredible bass, incredible high-end, comes out of walls. And the guy that was in, in the picture, uh, Tony Rawlinson, uh, sells jets. And he's, he sells jets for living, not cars, he sells jets to the rich Saudi Arabian princes or kings or whatever. And so to get a jet to, build you have to make them as light as possible so that's why tony Rawlinson went to see tony bon jovi because tony bon jovi had invented what they call the bon jovi sound system now when tony went to see tony r went to see tony b you know tony r when i call him Robinson, uh said he knew me and tony bon jovi said well i did his first record so tomorrow bring your camera and i'm going to bring his first album they brought him in they got taken the camera but like i said Tony Banjovi taught me a lot of a lot of stuff about how to record like old school techniques. I mean, not, you know, like back then, you know, like now what they do is to do like a snare trigger. It's just, you know, go into logical and make snare trigger or beat and they, everything just comes in automatically. Back then, to do a snare trigger, let's say your snare sounded dull or whatever, no change. So Tony had a, a, developed a technique where... You take a speaker, the small speaker, the oratone, and then you put a good snare on it. You put a really good sounding snare, you mic that snare, and then you send the snare signal into that microphone, into the speaker. And the speaker would trigger the snare that's well mic'd. And that's how you get a good sound. That's a really old, old school recording. So he was, he was, uh, was you know, he taught me a lot of stuff now, in that story also. Uh, after that, when I walked with mixing Fantasy and all that whole first record, when I used to walk out of the studio, John Bonjovi would be out there. Uh, you know, I don't know if he was a chatter or whatever, but he was always by the coffee machine. So one day, I uh, invited him into the studio to hear Fantasy, and he just like flips out. Nothing. First of all, nothing sounded like that. The songs, the guitars, the sound, uh, like. In reality, if my record didn't sound like that, uh, it wouldn't have been as big as it was. Tony made it like really what it was. And I mean, the record has good sounds, but he made it bombastic. Even today, it sounds great. So because of Tony knowing me and knowing like Roy Bitton from the East Street Band and Tim Pierce on guitar, and uh, you know everybody came to the session for a Runaway because of Tony on Jovi. They didn't come because of John Bon Jovi. So he put that all together. And that's never been acknowledged. So, um... Uh, you know, that's... And, and Tony Bon Jovi to this day, still thinks that my record is one of this power of achievements because you have to work hard to make it. Because <laughs> I didn't make it easy for him. And that's like, I know my stuff and I'm a hardhead. And he knows his stuff and he's a hardhead. And we're both right. And we're like, the record's credit is in the pit. It's like, so we're like fighting like gladiators and it's in the pit to get the record to sound good. So, um... It was, it was a lot of fun you know we just recorded we just learned
0: how is it that you guys ended up working together was it the record company paired you or did, did he seek you how did you guys end up working together and, and then what seems like it's forming a great relationship
1: um, president of the record company is really a a great guy his name is Lenny Fisi Lenny and Lenny's a music guy total music freak in his house in his living room he had a big sets of speakers that looked like concert speakers. And he played me a band, a band of his, which was called... See, I was already mixing my record in Long Island with a Canadian engineer. Now, we just... we was like the record was flat. And when we went to Lenny's house, um, he played us a band that he was producing called Balance. Now, the record just comes booming out of the speakers and it's got like just an explosive sound. And I just said let to Lenny, I said, Now I gotta get that guy. Can you get me that guy? And so Tony presented the music to, to Tony. Tony says I'd love to do this and that's how we started. Then he met me and then it was like twice as then he read twice as much wanted to do it. So it was like it was just a pairing. Then we did subject together. The subject was more experimental. It was a lot of fun. So for him also.
0: Now, did you write the guitar riff in "Blaze of Glory? I did. How did that come about? And then, why don't people know that? Because it's like, it's, it's one of those things that, that's, see, that's what bothers me. Like, you know, and I hear this a lot of times. You, everyone knows that and they think Bon Bondrovi and they probably think Richie Zambora. But how did it come about that you wrote it and then, did they have to ask you permission to use that?
1: No. Well, what happened with that, I still have the original cassette. Uh, it was a Friday afternoon. I, I was a, John's on a Thursday, Friday afternoon. He called me. I'm in New Jersey at his house in his mansion in Rumson. And uh, he says I have a song uh, called Blaze of Glory. And so we recorded it on a little little cassette that you know, like we used to take phone messages off of. Recorded the the tape. I still have the original tape, forty years later, thirty five years later. And it's him singing and it's me playing acoustic guitar. And so we go through the song and then he's you know, telling me, okay, I want it slower here, slower there, because I've got to go home back in Montreal and do a, a big production demo of it. So um, at the end, he was looking for some sort of a riff, I wanted dead or alive, So I started experimenting. I said, well, what about this and what about that? He goes, yeah, that's good. So we kept on something like that. Uh, and so they, we kept that riff. And so uh, I went home that night, and did a, for the whole week, he says, I need it by Monday morning, because I need it do the vocal. So I did the complete demo that sounds just like the record. I mean, the record is identical. And I also have a copy of that. But um, I have the... You can hear me, you know, doing the actual riff on this cassette of mine, and then going, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good. So, I mean, you know, there's no doubting it, that if I put that cassette out, that you, that you know that I did it. But again... You know, it was like a thank you on the record. You see, if you do my, on one of my records, I'll if you play bass or if let's say on such song I say a little prayer that I have bass player name is Sylvain Van or the guitar player's name is Dan Warner or the background singers and you know, all like that. Every song you get listed. You are who you are and who played for it and they get credit. Uh, with a Bon Jovi record, you get a thank you at the end. Uh, just no arranged by uh, guitars by you know. There's nothing. There's no spe- specifics. Even on the first album, there's no saying, I sang background vocals or the keyboards or um, almost that record or played you know, guitar and ran away. It was just like how the Pierce courtesy of Portrait record Records. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, I was, uh, I don't know, it's just a different type of, I don't know why and I really don't care why it doesn't, it doesn't I don't care what, I, what happens, happens. It wasn't, there's nothing to me. Nothing bothers me. It's just that uh, it's just a different set of work ethics, I guess. I don't know. I'm just different. I like to give credit where credit is due. That's all. That's no good. Slide, I mean, that's... No slighting. Against, no against John. It's just a different way of thinking.
0: That's all. Yeah, I mean that's good. Now, now, also, you know, you wrote a lot with stuff for Celine Dion. Did that all come from the jingle world? Is that why you started writing for her? Because you said you knew her. Manager, now husband and husband from jingles right
1: well I got
0: introduced to her
1: by the another A&R of Columbia in uh, in Montreal who was my friend and he said I have a young artist who's Francophone which in other words French speaking and I want you to write and produce let's say three which back then was three songs and so she was I don't know if she was 14 or 15 but I written One song already that she, that he liked, the manager. And then I wrote two more and and produced both songs. And then there was two other producers, but that's how I started my relationship with her. So it was always through the record company guy. Then I got to be good friends with her, her her manager. And so it was always through either of them that I got my songs on the album. And
0: What is it like writing for someone like that? Because it's like, you know, I just said, you, you know, you, you have a rock and roll background you had the instrumental album. Now, of course, you have the opera. So your your mind is outside the box, and you seem to be very original. Was it hard for you to write something that they were probably looking for something more poppy? No, but, you
1: know, pop music, you know, rock music, jazz—it's all the same to me. I mean, you know, I'm a writer. Uh, let's say when, if I really her hit, whenever it hit when she was like coming out from her comeback. I wrote a new deus Come, which was uh, number one in 26 countries for six months. Now, back then, she was expecting a child or wanted to have a child. Who was expecting. So uh, my friend, Stefan Macho, who I wrote it with, which also happens to be one great writer now. But back then, he was starting. And so we got together in the basement. And so he uh, started cycling these four chords c c minor a flat e flat b and he just kept cycling these chords and i started having this melody uh, and then we just got you know we sing the part but the words came to me but they were influenced by the fact that she was going to have a baby and i wrote specifically for her that song so it wasn't uh, i mean i would write specifically for the artist whether it be clay Aiken or whether it be Faith hill or whether it be uh Writing with Bon Jovi, you know, when we wrote "Mr. Big Time," it was, uh, which is actually a co-write. So, uh, uh, it's it's just minding yourself to be that. You know, it's like I can write in the, uh, I can write in the third person. So, let's say I'm writing a bio or something, or I can write as being the third person. Whether I, I think like, don't want to say it. something sometimes I have to put myself in place of a female singer I'll think like a female singer I'll think like uh, you know uh, I'll put myself in their shoes and sing their song for them and then it comes out like, like water so uh, it's
0: not hard so you, you left the business for a while you said you know you were doing jingles and you left it tell me about the album 2.0 you came out with in 2019 because that had some of your earlier music on too what made you decide to come out with that and do a mixture of songs
1: 2.0 was sort of like, I always knew it was um, the, the kicking, it was the start, that was just the start of me finishing my rock opera. It was like a step, another, a stepping stone towards it. And I had not picked up a guitar or not anything for years. Uh, I broke a finger on my left hand, my ring finger on my left hand, so I had to relearn how to play guitar. So now I play guitar with only two fingers on my left hand or maybe three occasionally. But, um, so I had picked up a guitar, and then I sort of had this flash of going, well, I should redo the songs on my first record, and sort of, I call them 2.0 versions, and just be creative from a different type of, be creative from a different stand, uh, stand standpoint. In other words, not have to create a song, but to take an old song and just see what I can do with it. And so, um... I started to get excited about playing music again. I got excited, excited about playing, you know, about mixing. And over the years, my craft got better. So uh, 2.0, I got my door slammed in the face so much on that record. Nobody wanted it. Nobody took it. And then uh, a distributor in New York called Missy Colasso, I sent her this tape at 10 o'clock in the morning. She, uh, She said, I'll have a contract for you by five. And she did. And then we, uh, I mean, uh, the record was already done. And so um, I, I knew it was a stepping stone to me, um, to me doing the, the Life and Times of Eddie Gage. Uh, it just got me excited about doing music. And that got me excited about actually coming out of my shop, coming out of my cave after like almost 30 years. So that's how I started.
0: Now, how did you come up with the name Eddie Gay Cage? I mean, it's like like anything. When, When you want to write a character, you know, I've written stuff before, you think okay, you want to find a character and and your character is an original name and, you know, you sit there and you think of something and and you go, oh, wait a second, this is too out there. Like, you'll see someone go, oh, Biff McDougal or something like totally weird. How did you come up with the name and how did you, how did you start shaping the vision? I mean, did you see the character first? I mean, you said it's, you know, relates to you, but did you see the character first and then bring the name on? But how did you come up with that name and just start, come up with that persona? Just, uh, it just
1: popped into my head, Eddie Gage. He's a young, strapping guitar player, you know, gunslinger, and uh, I don't know. It just came up for me. Eddie Gage. It's sort of like a cool name. Uh, and then I called it the *Life and Times*. And uh, I don't know. It's just like I sort of put myself in the shoes, of Eddie Gage is like, it's not. A cool, it's a pretty cool name for a, for <laughs> like a rock star, I guess. I don't know. It's just that, for me, that was always called. From day one, it was. I was going to call my album the, the, my rock opera, The Life and Ties of Eddie Gage, and then I already had eight songs. So um, I started. I played. I wrote my first song. I remember I was in my bedroom uh, with an acoustic guitar, and the song was called "Go On," and it was on February eighth, two thousand and eight. On two thousand the February ninth, two thousand and eight, I wrote "God knows my name." 2000 uh, February 10th, I wrote another song called Hell and Back. all of these songs still appear on my album, on my 2000 on my 2020 album, uh, the, the rock opera. So it was like a very creative uh, time.
0: Now, when you write a rock opera, do you formulate the story first and then write the songs to get to the point, or I would think that would be hard for inspiration? Do you sit there because you know you have different characters? which I, I want to ask you if they're based on real people. But uh, when you do you just start writing the songs and you build the story? Or how do you find the arc for the story that makes it an opera?
1: I had the basic vision of it. And uh, I, I didn't even... I knew there was places where I knew the way the story went as I was writing the song. The lyrics, if you hear the whole thing, Uh, like 23 songs will go oh yeah this one goes this makes sense plus I already woke like an act one act two Uh, they're already I already have a a serious uh, uh, producer uh, looking into financing and making this a major major show like a major on stage production so to me it was always my dream is to make this like big show like a or something like that so it was always acts towards that showcase the characters the songs always had the, the meanings of whatever, but even up to the last day, even let's say up to uh, two weeks ago, when I heard the last song when I wrote when all was said and done, I invented a new character that wasn't there before, that was sort of lacking. That you know putting that whole thing together of making it work. There was something I was just missing. So I wrote when all was said and done, it was like, Well, I don't know how to put this together. Then I invented the character of the judge. And then it became that when all is said and done it was like, okay, it's the attorney, Mark Angel, it's Eddie Gage in the in the witness chair, and it's the judge. You know, All of a sudden, it makes sense, the three characters there, and there's an interaction between the characters. If I hadn't had the judge, when I put the judge in the whole thing, everything just went bad, and that's it, I finished. But even though the record was done, finished and recorded, up till the last time that I had the idea, I wasn't. It wasn't concrete yet. You know what I mean? It was. I had most of the guys, but that when I that's that one guy that made it solid.
0: You know what I mean? So. Now is Eddie Chris uh, Andy Christos based on anybody or loosely based on someone you ran to? Because I just in the bio it says a corrupt record executive, and I go, well, that could be a ton of them. But is that is that from part of your life or is that something that you came up with to add to the story?
1: No, that's everything. any Gage is basically my alter ego. And it's like, it's all stuff that I've lived in my life. Um, the record is also light and dark. It's all about demons and devils and uh, good people and angels, but they're all hidden. Uh, the names, if you start analyzing the names, then it's pretty easy to see that the characters, the characters are. To me, a record company executive now is like a demon. You know what I mean? All they want to do is like a they're vampires. They're just you see you as a, a piece of me. They want to make money for you from you. And you know that's why now, you know, at sixty four I own everything. I own my lyrics, I own my I own the music, I own the publishing, I own the record company, I own the masters, I own everything. Nobody like I say in my bio, I'm a slave to so no one anymore. I've been there too often. So going back over my experience uh, whether nowadays record companies are even worse now, because back then at least you know, they used to only collect on you the know, sales of the record. Now they collect off 360 deals, which is you why know, they collect off your writer's royalties, your t shirt sales, your merchandise, your show. So this is just getting worse and worse and worse. So for me, a record company executive is a demon. You know, that's what it is. Andy Christos, let's take it for that. Okay, Andy Christos. Now getting back to the theme series, Andy is anti Christos is is Christ in Greek. <laughs> exactly, anti Christ. Same thing. And you listen to the lyrics in Haladi Dadi, and it's exactly
0: what it is. You know? So uh, now is Haladi hey, Dadi the first song to open the show, or because I, 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 you sent me the five? Well, what's the first song that would open the show on the album? Because the album's all put together like the opera. What is the opening song?
1: Yeah, I, I okay. There's a, okay. There's a pre-story to going like back. Uh, the story is that, you know, he, uh, is that Angie finds Eddie in the club. Uh, Eddie's already got an amazing following as a songwriter. He comes from uh, Austin, Texas. And he's already got an amazing following as a songwriter, amazing following as a guitar player. And... Uh, this guy hears about him, uh, the Andy is the head of the record, and goes and signs him. Of course, sees him only as a, a dollar sign, doesn't care about him. And so uh, he signs him, but he signs it for ulterior motives. He doesn't sign any for the positive message in his music. He wants to change his music to be darker and stuff like that. But he also, uh, you know, he's also part of a, uh, fraternity called the infinitum and Ferdinand, which is like uh, the brotherhood of, uh, uh, of anyway, I forget the name but right now, but it's, it's not a good... Uh, it's about it's a, a society, let's say like the... Uh, uh, I don't know, it's like a secret society. And so he's part of the secret society, and you know, he's a son of like a rich guy, I mean, and uh, it's just like signs him and then after that, you know, he makes him a star and things go uh, it's it's kinda like the you know, people have heard this story before. You know, it's typical, you know, a riot star is born or whatever or it's not like a but the way it's put together and the way the fact that I've seen it all, and done it all, and the fact that I write from the first person in this in this in this play or in this opera makes it different because it's not just something that popped out of my head. It's something that I've lived. So it makes it
0: uh Now if it gets produced, will you star in it or will you have actors star in it and musicians and and I mean what 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 would your plan be for that?
1: Well my album's always gonna exist as me. So that's the uh the uh the lifetime's been engaged will exist with me performing it like like you heard. And um uh, the stage performance will have a cast and characters and Sets and you know different, you know that's. Uh, I could separate myself from that, you know. It's like so. It was meant for that anyway, you know. So uh, I'm not gonna sit out there every night and play in a different country and, and go sing. I mean, I, I see the world this on a worldwide basis. I don't see. I never. I always saw the forest from the trees. I never saw just that one tree in the forest. I always saw the world, you know, as a as a place that's that's you know. It's like. It's like a, I'm a I'm a worldwide citizen, I'm not a citizen of Canada, I'm not a citizen of the United States, I'm worldwide. And now being on I'm on the internet,
0: I could be anywhere in the world. Anybody could be listened to all over the world. So now do you do you when you're writing it, do you do you have in your mind, does Eddie does Eddie look like you or do you have him looking like someone else? Like when you were writing the part, did you see you like you're writing from the first person as you said, or did you say Okay, this is how I think Eddie looks. What, which, what which did you do?
1: Well, it was kind of hard to think of somebody who's better looking than
0: me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, no, he's just like a, he would be a character more like David Bowie—just eccentric, wild clothes, uh, just a, a really a, a, a really out there uh, somebody, a phenomenon. You know what I mean? Somebody who's just wild, you know, wildly dressed and. And you know, slinging, you know, guitar slinging down to his knees. And that's like a, like a, the epitome of the, of the rock star. You know, it's like when, back then, in, when I was raised, let's say the 70s, let's say Bowie and all these guys, they would all have a special look. There was no, like, guys in T-shirts and things like that. So I still of the mentality of that if you have to get on stage, let's say you, you look at my video. I'm a survivor. I'm wearing a custom-made jacket with studs on it. It's like a custom, it's a jacket like you've never seen before. But I think that you have to sort of entertain and look a little bit not different, but you have to have a special look. So any uh, game should be like completely like completely out there look, you know, something like you've never seen before, a phenomenon. So. Uh,
0: now, I saw the video, and then, but you also just, you put up something on Facebook you were doing, you played uh, um, Fantasy. What made you decide to put that up? Because you said, you know, you're still kicking ass after these years. What made you decide to sit there and play it? And it sounds great, but what made you, just, did you just sit there to, to maybe get new fans? Or what why, why what was the reason for putting that up? Well, I was
1: doing a lot of COVID videos. I mean, yeah, I started with Paradise. I started to do a. Uh... Pull yourself. Pull yourself. Got you a lot of traction. It's, uh, it went up to 137,000 views. All the all the all the other ones started to to do it. So my home videos sort of like went. my my comments were like, "Oh my God, he's still alive! I thought he was dead." You know what I mean? So this is this is a true. True story. I mean, people are going, "Oh my God, he's alive! I thought he was dead. Where is he been?" So the COVID videos sort of were like to help people. You know, it's, it's that we sitting at home under lockdown to give them some sort of entertainment for, for no price whatsoever. It didn't cost me any that much money to make. It was a camera in the basement of my studio. Uh, you know, I, I played the backing tracks and played all the instruments, so I didn't really have to pay that many musicians. So um, it was a way for me to sort of give something during COVID, which, uh, you know, people were stuck at home. They were probably, you know, they turn that on. We go, well, I'll give them a good time for five, six minutes. And then I started doing more, and more people reacted. And then I figured, I, you know, I didn't know if I was going to be, I said it was going to be the last one, but I think that since COVID might be getting worse, I think I might probably do more. But to me, it was going to be the last one. So I figured I'd finish with what I started before the new record came out. So uh, what started me off was fantasy. So I figured, well, I'm just going to give people the treat and do fantasy. But it came out great, and a lot of views. Over three hundred thousand views in
0: two days. So now, from from the original fantasy video, what happened to the laser shooting guitar and what happened to the leopard jumpsuit? Do you still have them, or are they at the Hard Rock, or what happened to them? No,
1: the leopard uh, the leopard jumpsuit was stolen by uh, two groupies at a certain point in my career. Not at the same time. <laughs> the upper and the bottom half didn't go at the same time. And uh, the laser, of course, was done by rotoscope back then. We didn't have CGI, so the laser beam was, uh, was uh, drawn on each frame of the, the film. You just have to draw on each frame of the film until eventually you got a laser. So that's how they did it back then. It's called rotoscoping. And uh, now to shoot a laser out of a guitar, you just press a button, and shoot a laser. But back then, it was like a lot of hard work.
0: But do you still have that guitar?
1: Actually, no. I don't have it. I had, uh, there was a theft and uh, they
0: stole some of my gear and I was part of it. Well, that sucks. Well, you know what? This has been good. I'm glad. I, you know, I'm look. I really enjoyed the, uh, the, um, the five songs you sent me. And, uh, you know, we need, we need a rock opera. You know, it, there hasn't been one, you know, like people our age remember Tommy. You know, and, and, but no one really has gotten to see a rock opera, and it's such a great idea. And as I said, your songs, they have, they have peaks and valleys. You know, it goes from slow. It goes, someone's more funky. You know, it's got more keyboard in it. And uh, it's just something that, uh, it's cool. So I, I wish you good luck with that. I, I, hope, I hope that uh, we'll see it when all this shit goes down and coronavirus is gone. Hope it'll be a worldwide production of, uh, of, your, of, your, of your rock opera.
1: Yeah, the production will be one thing, and then I'll be on the road doing something else. I'll be on the road playing and you know just playing and singing and having a good time. Got a great band already ready to go, so you know, it's just I don't know. You know. Aldo Nova's back, 64 years old, kicking ass.
0: That's right, Aldo's back, kicking ass. That's the name of your album, the next album is solo. Aldo, Aldo's back, kicking ass. Um, I want to thank you. Now you're on Facebook. Uh, I know that it's Aldo Nova. Do you do any other social media?
1: Uh, I haven't really gotten to it uh, that much. Instagram, I haven't gotten the angle of it. Twitter, I haven't gotten the angle of it. Because I do, I do all, everybody, I, you know, I've even started doing my own PR work because I wasn't satisfied with what I'd hired. So I think it's easier for me. And I think people like you to contact me and me answering you back personally gives it a different edge. It just it makes it more personal. You know, we booked our interview. You were talking to me directly. I answered you back. And I think it's because of a different, different. Uh, it's just a different perspective for let's say somebody like you and I ask you back. It's, it's me, and you know, it's not like some PR company booking something. So I do all my own PR work. And I do my own press releases. i just I'm new at it, so uh, I'm doing pretty well for a
0: novice well I, I I gotta tell you i I, I laughed uh, when you email me back you you use the word quack and I love that word, and no one ever uses quack and I was like, oh my God, I said I'm gonna get along with this guy because he used the word quack <laughs> <laughs> so he will check out Aldo Nova uh follow him on uh, Facebook he posts a lot of great stuff uh, he posts some of the songs too he's he's posted um Hey, Lottie Dottie. He posts stuff. So if you want to hear it and you want to see his uh, video, he has a few videos up there. Check him out. Uh, follow me on Facebook. I'm Cooper Talk Radio. Go to my website, CooperTalk.net. You can find over 800 episodes. Email me, Cooper, at CooperTalk.net. Twitter, I'm at CooperTalk. Instagram, I'm at CooperTalk1. So remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.